the legal cannabis industry has unlocked generational wealth opportunities across the country. But the industry's regulatory complexities, constant state of change, and speed of evolution drive confusion for entrepreneurs and investors alike. On this podcast, we'll interview the industry leaders who are shaping the future of the legal cannabis industry to help our listeners understand these idiosyncrasies. This is Cannabis Unlocked, hosted by Key Investment Partners. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Cannabis Unlocked. I'll be your host, Jordan Euclid, today. Uh, I'm very honored to be joined by my friend Ross Bevevino of Millidium Capital. Ross, how are you doing today? Afternoon. Happy Friday. Hi, Jordan. Happy Friday. Uh, well, thank you so much for joining the podcast today. I think to kick things off, it would be great just to uh, tell the audience a little bit about your personal and career background and how you ended up uh, founding Millidium Capital. Sure. So uh, thanks for having me. Congrats on all of key success and being uh, some early leaders in our ever-changing space. Um, I, pretty boring career path up until this point, but normal, uh, started in finance, was in New York most of my career, all of my career, New York City. And then um, in 2017, 2018, I um, was very involved with uh, acreage in their last round of funding, which we led and we assisted in the IPO. And we did a myriad of things, including putting uh, political officials on their board and being able to really get our hands around a lot of the strategy and banking piece of it. But through that process, I learned an enormous amount about the whole sort of aha moment of, oh crap, this business is growing like a weed and it's not very well organized. In a corporate structure, there's no banking, we have no access to capital markets, but it looks like most of the banks that are, or the, the states that are licensing it quickly, um, I like to joke, are the bank or the states that have the most need for the money, right? So there's that's not going away as a need in the United States. So we knew that there was going to be a long dated effect to this growth. Um, so anyhow, I continued to track along on the cannabis investment banking front, but as I was doing that, I was asked by a family office to come in and run their business in California, which we did for about two and a half years. Um, it was with a, a large farming family, and the, the benefit there was obviously we got a lot of, I got a lot of knowledge about agriculture, right? The, was that cannabis farming? No, they were in traditional okay. farming. They were one of the larger almond uh, farmers in the country, largest organic dairy in the United States. And I just looked after their cannabis business. So we built out a very large farm in Southern California, a very large manufacturing plant in Central California. And we also built the really neat door-to-door delivery business, which was the only consumer facing business. But I ended up becoming a supply chain grunt out of that. Um, learning the SOPs, the cost analysis, the difficulties, what to use, what not to use. So the joke in the business with my partners is um, I got really, really smart in cannabis because I made a lot of mistakes, right? So you learn from your mistakes. Um, And it's still a very nascent industry. You know, you had very little sort of high quality corporate 500, Fortune 500 vendors you could work with because of the restrictions of the U.S. exchanges. So... um, did that. And then uh, at the start of about October of last year, um, 
that I decided uh, wanted to come back out east and move. My partners and I launched Millennium Capital. We've turned into um, a fundless sponsor. So we are sort of off the radar. We are supply chain experts. Uh, my other partner, Tyson, is probably one of the more recognized financial experts, I believe, in the space. He um, quarterbacked all the acquisitions during the roll-up at Acreage. Um, and then, of course, you know some of our other partners, one of which, you know, has sold the first cannabis business in Pennsylvania to truly. Um, so we have a really good backdrop. And um, that's it. So I didn't think five years ago I'd be full-time in cannabis, but for the last five years, I haven't. Yeah. <laughs> no, thank you, Ross. That's a really helpful background. And would love um, to hear a little bit more about operating the fundless sponsor model, because one of the things we've definitely noticed in cannabis is, you know, as constrained as capital is in the venture and debt markets on the more private equity buyout side of things, it's even more so the case just because capital is so constrained and those types of buyouts inherently require more pockets of capital and a more uh, consolidated investment. So one, would love to hear about your experience in, in terms of what type of business models you've been looking at, what you've seen the competitive landscape to be, and then maybe also it'd be helpful if you just give a quick overview of what the fund the sponsor model is for folks who may not be familiar. So we decided not to spend an enormous and inordinate amount of time looking for the traditional GP structure that we were so engaged with and, and involved in professionally before cannabis on in, um, from, from finance. So we have been dealing with large um, uh, financial sponsors our entire career, all of us. And, but we came out of the operating side and we came out of the C-suite side. So we had some really unusual on the ground, hand-to-hand -hand combat experience. We have our battle wounds. We've fought with city councils. We've, we've dealt with fire inspectors. We've dealt with losing crops. We've dealt with building with the right technology. So we've seen so much, but we, we had so much sort of off-market, middle-market deal flow that um, each deal was different. So for example, one of our first deals, I won't mention the name of it, but um, ended up becoming competitive. And we had, we had organized close to $35 million to bid for the OPCO of what was a renovation of a large farm. Um, the real estate was a big piece, um, but we ended up losing it to a SPAC. Right. So, but that deal is different than, let's say, the first deal that we closed in Boston, which was Ziprun. And that's, we're super proud of that. That's the first door to door delivery business that's going to be fully operational in non storefront delivery in Boston. Um, so, each deal has its own characteristics. And the LPs that we had worked with before, our investors, um, quite frankly, just really didn't have a lot of interest in going into another 10-year fund and getting another K-1 for the next 15 years. So we are very more targeted in our deals. Each deal is different. It could have different people around it, different strategic people around it. Um, not to say that we won't transition to that, likely probably next late last year, where we would become um, perhaps a bit more like what you guys have done, you know, ground the capital up and call it when needed. But we just didn't have time. We, we had so many things in front of us. Yep, absolutely. And that's one of the things that still remains pretty abundantly clear for us that obviously there's a lot of ways to lose money in cannabis, but I think the general capital markets landscape is such that there's so many attractive deals. The industry continues to take off. It remains so capital constrained that having access to that capital and being able to invest it in great deals today is, is so valuable. 
Yeah. And uh, also being able to put an operational touch on it. So I think yeah. there will be some more tradition. I think the, the financial sponsors also that sort of want to be in the business that can't be in the business due to the banking regulations are also very um, close clo uh, co-investors with us. But in a lot of cases, until the banking law changes, there are just, as you might imagine, as you know, just difficult potholes with banking compliance. Yep. And why don't we dive down that a little bit further? What are your thoughts on how the banking laws are going to change? How will that impact capital markets access for traditional investors, institutional investors, retail investors, whoever it may be? Well, look, it's been a long road. I'll start with the, the, the one that's fur furthest down the road that has to happen. And, and we've waited. I hate to say that on a public podcast, but I was going to say we've wasted time. But we spent a lot of time in Washington, D.C. through um, you know, our previous activity on, on Wall Street or in corporate America to you know, make a voice heard. And other people were making a voice heard on the NASDAQ, right? the U.S. markets. Um, have to open up in some sort of um, appropriate manner that can allow um, some declassification without full legalization, but something in the middle that would allow the United States to lead the capital market activity of what is a $25 billion business next year alone. So in three years, the estimates, I think you've seen them, have shown probably close to a $35, $40 billion market in the US. So you've already surpassed beer in the NBA. Um, and you're talking about an industry that doesn't have any university of note to train people in the industry. You have no protections of the Federal Depository Insurance Corporation, and you have no access or protection of the Securities Act in 1933, which protects against usury debt and fraud. Um, and so you saw so much weird capital activity that happened with Canada, without Canada, and people got hurt along the way. And the, the US has to sort of start taking note in the regulatory bodies to say, we need to control the banking of this business, not necessarily just also competitively as a business, but we're the only access market that's capable of handling that. Um, nothing against our Canadian partners, nothing against overseas exchanges, but we are leading, we are going to lead the world in cannabis and we have to as well with the U.S. exchanges. So it's starting, there are some discussions, as you know, there were some small discussions, I think about if only 25% of your business was plant touching and you, you can look at a more traditional listing. Um, down from that, you have the advisory piece of it, right? So we would like to call our friends from, from the Wall Street banks. We would like to talk to them. We would like to engage with these people. We would like to have their, their, their capital advice, their, their, their service, and the protections of our, of our US markets. Um, that's not available. Um, there are people that are pushing the advisory envelope. Um, you know there's a lot of people doing investment banking in cannabis now, but there's no offense to those people who are doing it, Again, the large sort of real um, bulge bracket firms have not even looked at it. Mm -hmm. I think in order of the investment banking leadership, I would say Cowan has taken the early lead with the obvious, uh, their conferences, their thought leadership and their research. Um, but of course they made um, most of their money in cannabis by dual listing the Canadian companies in the US. 
which is also hard for a U.S. person to look at and say, okay, well, there has been over $15 billion of activity in our markets for Canadian cannabis companies that have left the U.S. and went overseas to go buy assets in Germany or London or whatnot. So, you know, that doesn't make sense. If you look at the amount of money that's gone in to Canada through the alcohol companies, whether it's Molson, whether it's Constellation, and it's going into a market at a rate of capital that I thought was far too big because it was new and nascent when the when L.A. County in the United States is bigger than all of Canada, just L.A. County. The state, as you know, California's largest cannabis market in the world, surpassing Canada as well. So you have these things that need to come in line and traditionalize so we can engage in regular corporate activity on a daily basis in investment advisory work. Um, and so if you have, uh, there's also Stiefel, J, uh, JMP has now gotten into this space and they're doing, they're taking on advisory work. They found some compliance acceptable process or path that won't disrupt um, their NASDAQ uh, regulations or rules, um, but the other ones are just writing research right now and sort of waiting for the bell to open. On the banking side, look, I'm not going to politicize this podcast, but I think, you know, like in any, in any sort of bill, particularly now, what is a very dislocated United States in, in Washington, um, the first triad was just littered with so much other stuff. So you had this, this intricately important piece of cannabis, which is being rolled out all across the United States and legal in legal adult use states, but no one can focus on our bill. So they're focusing on it. Um, the last go round of the bill just had too much in it. And you can't ask for legalization, like everything and then everything comes green lit because how are you going to, how, how are we going to get a regulatory authority in, in Washington, D.C. set up to, to oversee this? So to answer your question is, I do looks like safe banking will happen next year. That will, that will free up capital with traditional financial sponsors that may have had that safe banking restriction. So I think that actually does free up some liquidity. I don't think it frees up an enormous amount of bank liquidity because if you're a bank and you're going to put out a significant amount of debt versus your current balance sheet, you would normally do what? You would collateralize that and then you would push it off to the, to the capital markets. So if the capital markets aren't open, there won't be a lot of collateralization activity. There will be some debt, traditional bank debt, but I don't think it's gonna happen the way people think just because safe banking is open. You're gonna need the capital markets open as well, particularly the debt capital markets, which are not open. So um, my quick answer to you is it stinks. It's tough. Banking is tough. It's tough that you get you get charged an inordinate amount of money to deposit your cash, to deposit even through a wire. Um, it's affecting normal moms and dads who are corporate executives or B-suite employees at cannabis companies being kicked out of their banks. Um, that's happened to us, and those frustrations shouldn't hit a company that's law-abiding, paying their taxes doing everything for a community, doing community outreach, and we're still st stuck within that, uh, those restrictions. So hopefully this fixes itself and hopefully it fixes it by what looks to be from the congressional calendar, hopefully next summer. Yeah.
Absolutely. And I think it's a great point you also bring up with regards to not only being unlikely for federal legalization to happen all at once, but also that that's not even the most practical or even uh, most efficient rollout strategy, right? And, and people kind of have this misconception, I think, sometimes that once we get federal legalization, all of a sudden you have a full active supply chain all across the country that's been sorted out and, and makes sense from a regulatory perspective. But if you look at what happened in the hemp industry after the passage of the farm bill, actually the opposite happened because the FDA still has dragged their feet in terms of how to regulate it. This kind of wild, wild west infrastructure popped up and, and it's actually caused a lot of issues. So in some ways, letting things develop at the state level and then continuing to roll them out, uh, I think will, will prove to be a benefit for the cannabis industry longer term. Yeah, well, you have a great point. There's very differing, uh, you know, ideals within the regulation of hemp and, and the regulation of cannabis. So by the letter of the law, having been in the hemp business and, and glad I'm out of it, um, it's easier to engage in the day-to-day -day business knowing what the guardrails are in a legal state for cannabis, THC cannabis, than it is to operate in a normal state of affairs nationally in hemp. There's too much ambiguity. The FDA hasn't even put out a new dosing initiative. The states have been pushed to have their own new dosing initiatives and how much can go into each of those drinks or whatnot. Um, I spoke at the National Insurance Cannabis Industry Conference right before COVID, and that was the only time I really did any other public appearance. And it was really, we were growing hemp, but we didn't understand, I didn't understand the traceability of the actual byproduct. There was no checks and balances. It was very tough to decide where it came from, was it tested, was the extractor of the hemp extracting cannabis at any time, that would have been illegal. I believe a lot of people were lying about those organic certifications early on that may have cured itself now. And the USDA and the FDA have basically said, you can't do it. It's, it's a food additive, but people are doing it. So there's a lot of people that are disobeying the, um, the, the speed limit, but there's really not enough cops and not enough people to really say we need to do anything about it. Um, and also there's a horrible issue with what's really in these, 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 these finished goods, right? So I think you've seen some of the stories out there that people randomly took some bottles off their early days at some of these retailers and they found out that some of them didn't even have CBD in them. So I think the hemp business, not, this is part of our podcast, but I think it's still a lot of ambiguity, a lot of confusion. I think uh, you see hemp prices crashing, you see the supply chain of the final oil or the distillate crashing. So I think there was just too much too soon and that market has to clear. Totally. And back to our prior discussion about capital markets, what do you think it'll take for the bald bracket banks to start operating in cannabis? They need the NASDAQ, though. That's all. And that's going to be a combination of the Securities and Exchange Commission with the federal regulators in however that formula looks. That's above my pay grade. But they want it. I don't think they want a whole other wave of capital market activity happening that goes to Canada. Um, last time I checked, Wall Street bankers are competitive. So I would imagine, and we've screamed at some of these friends of ours to hit the gas on their lobbying efforts, but it's really just going to come down to that. They are pushing the envelope with advisory work, which is good. Um, and unfortunately, a lot of them are still even, other than some of the ones I mentioned, 
um, a lot of the folks trying to get into the business are wet behind the ears on the business. Um, so I think the investment banking world uh, has to mature and then it'll eventually take place where some corporate operators might go into investment banking and work for the bulge bracket firms. But I think it's a ways off. Yeah, I agree with that. And also thinking about capital markets access and some of these cycles that you're referring to, obviously the SPAC uh, part of the industry, both within cannabis and SPACs in general, have seen some pretty, uh, shall we say, dramatic swings in capital markets favor over the last year, year and a half. And so would love to get your thoughts on where you see the SPAC market going in the future broadly and specifically within the cannabis industry. I think a lot of these SPACs, I, look, some of them, a lot of them are friends of mine. So I, I believe that you have two things going on. You have one, if it's a US listed SPAC with a much better cap table, much better banking coverage. And again, I'm not poking holes in anybody other than the US, but I'm saying is that uh, it just is, right? The, I hate this, the US is the center of the financial world. So you're getting much higher quality out of the gate SPACs than the US, but they can't buy anything. So until the law changes, um, probably some of them are going to find perhaps a dearth of ancillary cannabis businesses or CBD businesses, which they're actually allowed to buy until the laws change. Um, you, there are the SPACs that come out of Canada and list in Canada, and they are now allowed to, uh, those are fully accessible to the U S market for plant touching business, but different market, different fundraising different cap, uh, different uh, lead investor, different term sheets. Um, and right now, perhaps a bit more punitive than they were, you know, even a year ago. So I don't think, uh, we don't get up every morning and wonder what the SPACs are doing. We, we get up every morning and, and, and ascertain how much market share you can get. What's the supply chain pricing in that particular state? What's the margins you can hit while you're in that state? And what's eventually going to be the consolidation of the asset you bought, either by the by the MSOs that have the cash or by a financial sponsor that may have had freedom to move about the cabin in cannabis after the banking law. But I, we in for plant touching um, supply chain and brand uh, management, which is our our expertise, we 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 don't see them as playing a major role. Yeah. And it's a, great, a major role in the ancillary businesses like software and genetics and hemp and CBD. But I think some of those deals that are getting done, which are good deals, I don't know how many, how much is left to be able to get those sort of market caps that need suffice within the spec structure. Yeah, that's a great point and something that we've seen in the industry as well, in the sense of a lot of these SPACs that can only buy ancillary companies. To your point, there's just not a ton of ancillary companies yet of that size that it makes sense for them to be acquired at the enterprise value that the SPACs need to take them public at. Obviously, that's changing and you've seen some big valuations and you saw you know, the Dutchie raise, Weed Maps uh, executed, the spring big deal has been announced. So there's certainly, it's not that there's none, but it is a bit of a needle in a haystack. Now, certainly as the industry continues to grow, those tech businesses will continue to grow and there'll be more and more, but it is, uh, it is an interesting case of a, of a situation where in some ways the capital markets got uh, ahead of the industry in, in cannabis. 
Yeah, they, um, but there's an old motto right in Wall Street. And so if the money's there, take it. So um, <laughs> uh, I, I, I'm not the best person to opine on how that plays out. Sure. Great. So shifting gears to the uh, cannabis investment landscape today, where are some of the sectors that Millennium Capital is focusing their interest today? So um, number one, for reasons you know from our friendship, we like indoor We like indoor cultivation. We like it in both the competitive markets and in the nascent markets. Obviously markets that have no option for it, that's mostly east of Denver um, where the weather's not permitting. Um, we, we like high quality indoor cultivation. Um, you're seeing, um, you're already seeing greenhouse crop prices happening in, the Western states and in California, and you you see the consistent crop price of high quality indoor holding its level, and we believe it'll continue to hold its level for myriad of reasons. Lots of it is going to be sort of environmental controls, the efficiency of it, being able to replicate it, and having you know a rolling rolling harvest along the way, like an efficient greenhouse. Um, I think those who have greenhouses that are up and active and have worked out the kinks. And I can say from experience, having been involved in uh, you know pretty large greenhouse build out, there's gonna be kinks, there's gonna be mistakes, there's gonna be heartburn. Um, we've seen some greenhouses out West, one particular I just returned from, which is completely outfitted with supplemental lighting, CO2, lighting within, so within the plants to really enhance the highest quality greenhouse you can get. So there, there are some of those that have it. I think those that don't or could potentially be, you know, in a competitive price um, uh, concern, maybe over a period of time. Now we just did, there was a big harvest in California. So that's why that's happening a bit, but we do like that. And we like it in the nascent markets. So, you know, there's a lot of real early price discrepancy between commercialized, highly competitive markets like a California or like out here in New Jersey, New York, Massachusetts, Pennsylvania. So we, we like those markets. We really like Massachusetts. We really like New Jersey. Um, New York hasn't really dropped the regulations yet for the adult use applications and Pennsylvania is working on them. Um, just to mention a few, um, you're able to see if you can put up a really good supply chain, if you can tack on a good cultivation asset or manufacturing or distribution asset to your to your existing sort of dispensary business or um, small vertical, in those markets I just mentioned, you're going to receive very attractive wholesale supply chain pricing that would make your model work, um, whether it's for your own brand or your own stores or entering the supply chain market in those respective states. Um, and also in those states, there's a, a big white space in distribution, right? So distribution is not necessarily in any business, a incredibly vibrant P&L, but it also is very vibrant in owning routes that has brands that are consistently getting to the end consumer of the store. So that white space that's out here with distribution and high quality supply chain, which is getting better, but there's a lot to be done. There's a lot to be done to prop up the supply chain in these states. And we like it. That's great. And we have a very similar view on the distribution aspect of the industry. That was a big part of our thesis in investing in herbal in the sense that 
certainly not uh, a sexy high margin business typically, but in a such a complicated regulatory regime like cannabis, where getting product from point A to point B is, is so important and so complicated. And today you're having to accept a lot of payments in cash. It's uh, such a mission critical part of the supply chain. You can't let it, uh, you, can't, you can't forget about it. And so what do you think about uh, the industry going forward? Do you think that the MSO landscape that we see today will be dramatically different? Will there be more consolidation? Will all the big ones today be winners or will some end up falling off? What, where, what are your thoughts there? Yeah, so again, um, I'm not gonna, I don't think I'm gonna opine on who succeeds and who doesn't because, um, you know, again, I know that you have a very popular podcast, Jordan, so I don't want to anger anybody, Or, but uh, they're the ones that have found themselves to be the leaders today, um, we call it the big five or big six, that will be the leaders tomorrow. Uh, and um, they were able to access significant capital from the capital markets in Canada when the window was, was, was vibrant and when it was open and the pricing was good. Um, those who didn't successfully access those markets are a bit cash-trapped or they were successful in accessing those markets and they spent the cash, right? And those would be what we, some of the smaller limited two or three state MSOs that were participating in those, in those capital functions in 2017, 18 and 19. Um, so you had just a really, I hate to say it in cannabis and having walked through hundreds of organizations in the United States, um, it was nascent and in 17 and 18, it was still very nascent and the operational experience, um, the ability to balance a checkbook, the ability to be profitable, the ability to run an organization. Uh, a lot of people, a lot of people faltered and it may not have been their fault because it wasn't their Ballywick, but it, a lot of companies did fail because of that. The other thing I think it's very important to pull away here for those looking at the space is the, the cannabis industry in the United States has been forced to become profitable versus if you look at the other assets that are trading at ridiculous levels, whether that's a snowflake or whether that's one of these things going on in AI or these unicorns, these companies can raise money for years, even to their IPO and pass it without making a dime. Well, what happened to the US cannabis industry? Well, we were restricted with capital. Canada sometimes is there, sometimes not. You have traditional financial sponsors, or for that matter, let's say family offices that still have some um, revolving line of credit or some sort of a situation with a large bank that they don't want to disrupt. So it, it is still difficult, right? So what is, what's forced into an industry looking for high quality capital? You have to become profitable. <laughs> you have to show that you can manage the books. You have to show that you can run a company with efficiency. You have to show that you can be better than the next dispensary, even if it's five or 10% better margin. You have to show that you can grow lower cost per pound with efficiencies, um, which is why we are very excited about um, our alignment with adaptive growth technologies because of the efficiencies of the indoor growth system, the ability to get credits from the grid. And we can talk about that in a bit, but you have an industry that has been forced to probably be in the next couple of years that we still have these funding restrictions um, pretty well managed 
Um, so for that reason, I think you're going to see the MSOs hold on to their cash. I think they're going to be um, very choosy with their acquisitions going forward. Um, I think there'll be consistently combinations of cash and stock uh, for the foreseeable future. And that currency transaction is right now owned by the five or six biggest that have that liquidity and have that currency. Yeah, absolutely. And yes, we'd love to learn a little bit more about what you just mentioned with regards to adaptive and um, the efficiencies that they can bring to different uh, cultivation facilities. Yeah, so you know um, some of our friends from the corporate leadership team at General Electric mm -hmm. uh, introduced us to this company um, because it has a lighting aspect to it. And we were not interested in ancillary businesses because we're plant touching experts, but we are interested in efficiencies, right? And that system was very appealing to us because it has an entire system with an environmental control platform that's patent pending patented lights that are liquid cooled and a patented air handling dehumidification unit and process, which most importantly recaptures all or most of the waste heat. And without boring you with some um, engineering jargon or incentive jargon, it's allowing you to go to the utilities, the local utility and garner not so insignificant incentives. So the, the cannabis business is quickly getting to um, a concern, and it's being talked about more now than, than not, is the sustainability and the ESG of this business. So I'm sure if I showed you, and I won't do it on this podcast, the amount of energy use in sort of legacy older indoor grows, you, some towns could literally probably build another school after the five years of energy use in that, in that facility. So the, the ability to save that, to be sustainable, to have a system that is able to be monitored in multiple states with efficiencies, um, a technological platform that will allow alert a head grower in one state, something's going wrong in room two in Illinois, and he might be sitting in Boston. So um, we were very excited about that when we realized the extent of what it was. And uh, so that's our first and really only ancillary business commitment. Great. And you mentioned earlier about uh, how you find Massachusetts and New Jersey is particularly attractive today. I'm curious in general, what are your thoughts on some of these limited license markets like Massachusetts and New Jersey, where we've seen licenses going for pretty um, robust prices? Do you think that that is justified and, and will those values be sustainable on those licenses going forward? Uh, so a couple of things. So Massachusetts is necessarily a limited license state. It's limited in the supply chain. Let's put it that way. And New Jersey limited to a point, but the first big adult use licenses won't even be granted until early next year. So it's still, in, as it stands today, a medical state, let's say. Um, I, I would say that in some either limited or not limited, I'll get to that in a minute, um, the limited uh, the nascent early states, particularly on the East Coast, um, the supply chain hasn't caught up. Um, if you look at California, you have an extremely efficient commercialized market. The consumers demand certain quality. They demand certain products. They demand certain form factors. And they, they demand a consistent return to the same experience. So that market has become efficient by that. 
It's become efficient also in that you don't have to do everything. So for example, in Rhode Island or in Florida, you have to own everything. Now that's a very inefficient business model, right? Budweiser doesn't grow their own barley. So you have people being stuck in some weird and sort of restrictive regulatory licensing setups. Or in California, if you're good at distribution, you can do distribution. If you're good at cultivation, you can do just cultivation. There's nothing restricting you from applying for the other licenses, but by the nature of a commercialized market, it became efficient. So there's great brands, there's people that just make really good distillate and give it to the brands, there's people that have great farms, there's people that have amazing distribution and that's all they do. That hasn't happened on the East Coast. And because of that, and I'm not pointing fingers at anybody, the quality, I believe, um, in this, the newer markets is not very good. Um, you also have the inability, as you see some of these bigger brands try to get into these other states, either through licensing deals, IP deals, which we like those deals in some cases. Um, you have a lot of uh, trouble replicating your SOPs in other markets if you don't have a license there and you're finding a manufacturer to partner with, whether that's the formulation of the vape cart, um, whether it's the manufacturing of an edible brand, and always and always is it the same, is, is the flower as good as the flower brand in Denver and California that wanted to come out to the East Coast. So you have that. Um, you also have, um, I would say, unfortunately, the states that put the medical plans in place did not have a lot of checks and balances on the quality. So I would have to say that the patient population in the newer states are getting pretty bad, pretty bad quality mm -hmm. in comparison to what we would consider the best. Yeah. So we like that opportunity to bring that 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 quality form factor to a higher level to become an earlier leader in providing, whether it's the best distillate, the best tasting part, the better gummy, and obviously consistent high quality flour. So again, I'm not gonna point um, fingers at all, but this happens, right? So in California, you have the plant, right? You, or any, any cultivation business, but I'm gonna use California as an example. And uh, you have what are called the premium buds or flower, they call them A's. And then you have what are smaller buds or flower, B's. Um, so sort of Johnny Walker blue in your cheaper bourbon or scotch. And then of course you shock the plant and everything that comes to the bottom is either shake or trim, depending on which part of the country you're in. But in, in California, you, you, you grind that trim and you test it and you're frankly really only supposed to extract with it. And that trades probably around $175 to $110 a pound, depending on the THC count of your final tested trim. And some of the Eastern markets where we are now, um, that trim goes for close to $1,500 to $1,000. And there are people rolling joints with them. So um, to enhance their efficiencies and their profit, but um, a, a consumer in California would not put up with it, but there's no option out here. So um, that has to fix itself. Yeah, absolutely. It definitely has to fix itself. It is pretty, uh, pretty fascinating to see the discrepancies, not just in quality, but also in price when you go from market to market and you look at mature versus emerging versus nascent markets. So a lot of, um, 
a lot of kinks to be worked out in the cannabis supply chain, that's for sure. Yeah, and the and that price discrepancy, um, you're aware that we're we are funding a uh, large grow and a manufacturing facility in Massachusetts, and that price discrepancy, meaning being higher wholesale supply chain spot price in Massachusetts, is attractive to us for even a period of time as it decreases. So it does make your financial model look more attractive when you, uh, for, the, for at least the first couple of years. Yep, absolutely. Well, Ross, thank you so much for joining the podcast today. This has been such a blast. So I really appreciate you taking the time for the interview. It's no problem. So thank you very much. Thank you for what you guys are doing. And uh, I think this is a super exciting time. And we're going to be able to see, I think, a lot of wealth created for people, a lot of wealth created for um, the social equity community, which is being uh, which is a big part of a lot of the state laws and how they're rolling out. I think that's a good thing. Um, our delivery business in Massachusetts is a social equity business. And I think uh, we really support that program. We think it, we think it enables the community to become more involved. Um, I think it's good for the town. It's good long-term for the business. So um, I think there'll be a lot of good that's going to come out of cannabis over the next couple of years, in spite of the banking restrictions. Absolutely. And we completely agree and, and appreciate your support of the social equity initiatives. And it does seem that more and more leadership from cannabis these days is understanding the importance of social equity initiatives and, um, and criminal clemencies for folks convicted of cannabis crimes. We're so far behind in terms of catching up on, on those initiatives relative to where the cannabis uh, industry is from a business perspective. But it looks like we're hopefully at least making some real real momentum towards correcting some of those issues. And, and so we thank you. Yeah, for being and I think the, the industry needs to take a leadership role too in, in even beyond that with drug rehabilitation. As you know, I was just with some officials in New Mexico yesterday exploring that market, which I believe is a very attractive market. Um, it's not as big as the other markets, but I think it's still very attractive. But one of the officials there mentioned the, the horrible opiate problem in one of their bigger cities. And, you know, that's something that the city councils and mayors and state assembly people, they, they worry about that more than how to do the right licensing for people coming in and putting these businesses up. So I think you'll see more and more, um, I, I hope our industry is more and more engaged in, in working in plans for opiate research, getting people off opiates with cannabis. Uh, we're involved with a group here on the East Coast, a healthcare group that has a, a cannabis uh, research facility at the at Rothman in Philly. So I think that needs to happen more and more because we have a horrible drug epidemic, we have a horrible opiate epidemic. Also, I want to also say that the veterans need to be a big part of this. You know, we're back in that veteran business in Massachusetts. So there should be no reason why a vet wouldn't be, shouldn't be able to go into a VA and cure some of his headaches from a PTSD or, or, or for a roadside bomb. And I don't know if anyone's been near an IED, but even if it's 10 feet, you know, if it's a block away from you, you're going to have headaches and ringing in your ear. But the only option for them in the VA is an opiate, not potentially some, um, you know, good dose of cannabis washed over by a medical doctor that can help. So that's my last little uh, political uh, soapbox. but hopefully the, the industry does get more engaged with re-entry, with opiate research, 
and particularly with helping the veteran. Absolutely. And I think that's something that we can hopefully all collectively uh, agree to make a priority for 2022 as we roll into the new year. Good. Let's do it together. Let's do it. Thanks so much, Ross. Have a great uh, rest of the year. Happy holidays and happy new year to you and your family. Good. Have a great weekend. Go Steelers. <laughs> Go Bengals, baby. All right. Bye-bye. See ya. <laughs>